Well, I'm delighted that this week's guest is Tabitha Goldstab, who started life by starting a tech company called Rightster, I think that's fair to say, or started Tech Life, let's put it that way, by co-founding a company called Rightster with the entrepreneur Charlie Muirhead, uh, which floated in November 2013. Uh, but she's now better known as the co-founder of Cognition X, which is a huge conference focusing on artificial intelligence and was set up with the idea of giving expert advice to businesses on how to use artificial intelligence. So she is now the artificial intelligence guru of the UK. In fact, she's such a guru that she's now the chairman of the UK government's AI council. And also she's apparently an AI business champion. But the key thing is that she is obviously uh, helping steer the government's policy on AI. So as you can imagine, she ticks all the boxes for this podcast because she's at the coalface when it comes to business and what's happening with AI. And she's also at the coalface when it comes to policy and what's happening in AI. Hello, Tabitha, I should say. <laughs> Excuse my manners. Hello. You sit there listening <laughs> to me rant away. Uh, I always want to start, I want to start a bit with background. And I just, obviously, one thing that appealed mm. to me, obviously, is you could, uh, as this podcast develops, more and more of the listeners will gather that I'm really thoroughly depressed that I haven't founded an enormous tech company. Uh, but one of the things that appealed to me in particular about your background is you've actually got quite an arts background. I think you studied graphic design and indeed advertising before falling into tech. So I just wanted I a bit of a reflection to begin with on starting life thinking you're going to work in kind of the creative industries arts and ending up really working quite solidly in tech. Uh, good. Yeah, good. I've had many reflections. <laughs> good first, good first question. question. But also I've had so many <laughs> reflections of it on it recently. Um, before I before yeah. I answer, I think it's very important that your listeners understand that I am not the AI guru. Uh, I'm the guru of <laughs> AI gurus. So my my superpower is is getting the right people in front of policymakers. So really being the right. chair is, you know, one of life uh, of the AI council is one of life's great pressures because I get to spend time with all of the actual real AI experts who've been there since, you know, the 60s paving the way for today's work and I'm really there um, to, to glue all of them together rather than being the, the guru myself. I do not know how to train you We're going to cover <laughs> We're going to cover okay, all that good. in a moment. I, but it's also important that you set down, you've also provided an important thread for this podcast, which is every single podcast I do, my guest corrects me on something. Oh, good. <laughs> so, so you've got that well, in just, I've got that in Don't worry, I'm sure there'll be other <laughs> Right, be now other let's things. talk about your arts background. So about my... We're going to talk about, and then we're going to come back to your AI Good, on ongoingness. So um, yeah. I... I I'm not sure that arts and and advertising aren't the same as tech, and I think that the at the generation that I hit university at, um, you know, I, I thought advertising was the coolest way to reach people and change people's minds, and and ultimately it was also the same year that Facebook came into universities, and I realised quite quickly that the old way of advertising 
was definitely not the place to be, but actually talking directly to consumers was the place to be. And so the company that um, I joined, which was run by Charlie Muhead, was called T5M. And to me, I kind of, for, mo- for months, if not years, thought I was still in, you know, advertising in the creative industries. It just happened to be fueled by technology. I kind of hope that that helped me not have the fear. So I didn't think, oh my God, this is terrifying and not for me in tech. I just felt like this is another medium. I was really into Marshall McLuhan at the time. Uh, The medium is the message. And I was just really into thinking how, how I was delivering this news was important. And so we had an engineering team in India and they were able to help us deliver the message quicker to people in their homes, you know, wherever they were. And I loved that. Um, And I think I always saw tech as something that was fun and creative. Yeah. Brilliant. And then you were ahead of the curve again when you decided that AI was obviously going to be a thing. I mean, obviously, we've been through a period where every pitch document has either the words AI or blockchain Mm. in it. But uh, you realized uh, a few years ago that more and more businesses were going to want to know what the hell this AI thing was. And want somebody to explain it to them in a way that wasn't just simply a dinner, a line at a dinner party, but actually an intelligent and thoughtful analysis mm. about how what AI is and how it could help their business. So you set up Cognition X. Talk, talk to us a bit about yeah, that. Yeah, so I think the reason that I realised was not because uh, I was any forecaster, but because I was going through that same pain myself. So Charlie, um, uh, as you mentioned, my co-founder, he was the CEO of Rightster, and he basically said, you know, we need to get quicker. Uh, at delivering these messages to people. And we looked at the ways to do that. It was clearly data science, artificial intelligence, machine learning was going to enable us to better reach the people that we wanted to with the content that we were creating. And so I spent about a year um, back in 2015, 16, looking to understand artificial intelligence by myself. It was pretty lonely. We hired and mishired. We we got, um, we, we, you know, we worked with companies, startups, big companies trying to help us. We were a public company by then. And therefore, you know, people thought that we money grew on trees, which it definitely didn't. And it was a horribly lonely year of fail, of, of mini, mini failures. Um, and I think that you joke about dinner parties, but honestly, COGEX started as a series of dinner parties. It was almost like self-help. We would get together with some of the brightest minds in the world, really. Um, professors at UCL and business people at at the big banks and sit around and explain to each other how hard we found this. Um, And that's when I realized that well, that's, to be honest, when Charlie realized there's a business in this, I was, you know, very happy hosting and bringing the community together each week um, on the smaller scale. But really, that's when the business started taking off because we saw that people needed more than just uh, self-help dinners. They needed a way to do business. So, I'll ask the stupid question then. What is AI? I mean, it's quite it's quite interesting that we happily chat away about it. I chat away about it, but I think it's important to sort of slightly pause and say, what is yeah. machine learning, artificial intelligence? It's so hotly debated still by even you know the world's experts. Um, AI is the dream that machines can think for themselves, and because it's really a you know a a dream. Um, ultimately, the work that people do in between now and that, um, and that kind of 
mission, you might call it, has got many different guises. So within artificial intelligence, machine learning is the the predominant technology, but there's also deep learning. Um, and there will be new forms of um, learning in order to get to some kind of artificial intelligence. And ultimately, the best way that I like to think about it, and the audience can think about it if they're not already experts in this, is we're training a machine rather than coding a machine. So instead of saying to a machine, uh, you know, set up the, the dinner table in this this certain way with fork millimeter six knife millimeter seven and so on. What we're saying is we're showing a machine lots and lots and lots and lots of pictures of various different dinner parties and saying to a machine, okay, lay the table. This analogy really has I've stretched a little too far. Um, but uh, what we're what we're effectively I think seeing we can is a different dinner party analogy. <laughs> We can keep the dinner party and actually getting through. The oh, whole we're going to have to now. It's 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 where I feel most <laughs> comfortable. Um, so uh, difficult, uh, slightly but badly phrased question. But I'm a chief executive, and I don't know what AI is. So if I said to you, you know, what are the use cases that I can use this AI for? I'm a kind of, I'm a. I'm a retailer, retailer. and I I want to use I want to know about this thing. I how's it going to help? So as a retailer, um, you could map out, or you probably have already mapped out your end-to-end life cycle of um, of a product, and also of a customer, and also really of your whole business. And I would propose that there would be an an area along that journey where AI could be used. But what I would say first is don't just look to apply AI. You have to look for where there is a problem that you need to fix. Be very, very sure that this problem is not a cultural or basic technology challenge because a lot of things are just you know, interoperability issues or outdated software issues. And only at that point would I then look to a technology like artificial intelligence where you're looking for something to be predictive. So if you're looking for something where traditionally you need huge amounts of data where you might not have had it before, there's huge amounts of uncertainty where a you know basic decision-making process hasn't also worked. So something like um, you know logistics in your warehouse and cooling the data centers so that you're both um, supporting your net zero goals and reducing your costs. That's where I would really focus my efforts. So you're in London. In fact, you're just down the road mm. from me. Um, and weirdly, London is one of the best places to be for what you're doing with Cognition X because London is a global hub for AI. I'd love you just to talk through why why that is, why, why you see or we should see London as one of the kind of global centres for the development of AI businesses. So two years ago, I wrote the report, uh, or co-wrote, supported my team to write the report for the London Mayor on uh, why AI London was the capital of Europe. And it uh, has more startups than Berlin and Paris combined, for example. And I think the reason why is, is threefold. So one is the proximity of tech to client. So that retailer that we just um, spoke about before is much closer in this city to the startup hubs and the technology companies than it is in, say, the Valley, where often that is more removed. So culturally, having um, those two things together is important in all tech, but especially in AI, where AI is not just a technology in itself, it is something that learns from its environment. And so that proximity is really quite magic. The other thing is diversity. So we have more um, diverse founders in in London than in in the Valley. And that 
really leads us to the third point, which is great talent. So the universities are really um, world class. The professors we have in this in the city um, and the golden triangle of sort of Oxford and Cambridge included make London a place that um, the best, both data science, artificial intelligence, engineering, um, humanities, people who want to come and talk about artificial intelligence are here. We obviously have to work quite hard to keep all of those three things true, <laughs> but they are, uh, you know, they're, they're good bedrock for us. And I think, I mean, I remember speaking to the founders of DeepMind who, even though they sold to Google, were very passionate that when they sold, uh, that they stayed in London. They see their company as very much, well, to put it bluntly, they see their company as almost better than a university in terms of having more PhDs uh, working for them than you would find at university. But as a kind of hub that will create lots of other startups. So you've clearly got some big players like DeepMind choosing to stay in the UK and helping to feed that ecosystem. And, and they will publicly say that a lot of that reason is because of the diversity and the cultural excitement and the heritage of culture meeting technology of London um, and the UK. And that is pretty epic. Now, keeping, you've very helpfully helped me segue into uh, my next question, because you talk about keeping London and the UK at the forefront in the lead and you are the chairman of the government's AI Council. Now earlier I described you as the UK's AI guru and this is your chance to put me back in my box <laughs> and explain where you fit in the AI ecosystem, what your role is as the chairman of this council and segue into a chat about government. Thank you. I just feel slightly uncomfortable to ever be called a guru in anything, um, <laughs> but especially in something where um, I feel there are so many amazing people and I have a council of 22 of them um, on, the, on the council, but also we have, the, we have wider working groups because our, my job in, in the council is to make sure that the council can do its job. Um, and the first thing we, we do is to advise on existing policies. So obviously there was the AI sector deal. And really it's about doubling down on what was good and then amplifying that. Um, secondly, we're there to horizon scan, give impartial advice. And we've just recently written a roadmap um, which points to some of the areas that the council believes we the government should um refocus or start to focus on and that is about to go into consultation with uh, the wider ecosystem and then thirdly we are and hope to be a unifying voice for the AI community and so a way that the government can speak to the ecosystem wider ecosystem and the ecosystem can speak back and the the council is made up of some serious um, uh, AI professors you've got people like Chris Bishop um, Neil Lawrence Marie O'Neill, you have also uh, business, business expertise like uh, Paul Clark, uh, CTO of Ocado, Adrian Joseph, um, who's the head of AI at BT. Um, and, and there's a kind of um, moment where the people who created the AI, the original AI review, Dame Wendy Hall, is on the council, meet with some of the startups we also have. So Priya Lakhani, the CEO of Century Tech. Um, Mark Warner, the CEO of, um, of Faculty, Kriti Sharma. And what I love about it, you've got Sir Mark Walport, um, the, the ex-CEO of UKRI. So you've got this kind of wonderful mix of new and old, oh, I should never say old, new and experienced coming together to really look at um, how do you make the UK the very best place to... to um, to take advantage of the competitive advantage of artificial intelligence. 
um, and that's really my, my job is to keep the keep the spirit alive um, and sound advice going to government. So I've been a minister and chaired committees. Mm. It strikes me twenty two people on a committee <laughs> strikes me as almost impossible to run. I don't. I know people say that. I love it. I don't know what it is. It works really well. I know. I know every one of them incredibly personally now. It works. We uh, we meet quarterly, but we also meet in between. We meet in subgroups as well on specific things. So there's a subgroup on data, the subgroup group on skills, and one on narratives. Claire Craig runs the narrative session. Um, Martin Tisney and Neil Lawrence on data, and Dame Wendy Hall on skills. And so, actually, we 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 get things done in smaller groups and then come back together. And it, with AI, it was very difficult. Otherwise, you know, we wanted to represent all of the devolved nations as well. So we have people who are there, like Pete Burnham, who represents Wales and Northern Ireland by Marie O'Neill. And so it needed 22 people. AI is, is such a cross-cutting technology that it, was, it, it wasn't an okay thing to do. It wouldn't have been diverse enough if I had just chosen three or four or six even. 22 really felt right. <laughs> so it was your idea, not, not imposed on you by the politicians who wanted to not offend anyone by leaving them off. I can't remember whose idea it was, but I was really happy to... I mean, this is why we have the working group model as well, because the ecosystem is meant to be porous. And so the working groups are with people outside of the committee, the main council itself. So we go to um, the right expertise for a specific topic. So whether it's track and trace or defense ethics in this country, that those, those are things that not everybody can be experts in. And I really can't bear generalists like me <laughs> saying my expertise on things. Like it's so much better if I can get to the exact person who I think government should be speaking to. Going back to the dinner party analogy or keeping the journalism analogy, um, you know, it is it is a line, as it were, that machine learning algorithms are created by white men, and that it, that for that front loads, as it were, intrinsic, unconscious bias. Mm. Is that is that a fair critique? Definitely conscious and unconscious bias. You have a uh, in the valley, especially, and I I don't excuse the UK, but. You know, we, there is a bro culture to technology and there is a culture of, uh, you know, build it and I'm just an engineer and I don't care what happens to it. I think there are some incredible activists out there like Joy Balwami and Kate Crawford um, who are bringing um, businesses to account for this. But there's still a long way to go. 19 or between 16 and 19 percent of uh, AI data science sort of uh, people at the cutting edge of this technology are women and of that even fewer are black or from um, uh, Asian or ethnic minorities and so you have this challenge where you could have your uphill battle um, to even notice this bias before it hits um, the consumer and I think that a lot of this is solvable with getting the right people in the room, the right technologies like, you know, like explainable artificial intelligence, which is why we need to do the fundamental research. Um, it is all solvable uh, as long as we are incredibly conscious of it and optimize for it uh, and reward ethical use of artificial intelligence. So and just talking about ethics, another angle to ethics, mm. um, still at our dinner party with mm. me spouting forth. <laughs> and me as well, like I'm totally getting over the, the that. Most, yeah. uh, 
The most used example at my dinner party is obviously the kind of autonomous weapon system, which is kind of going back to the old robots will kill us. So people say, you know, I think it's terrible that you can launch a drone, which effectively, thanks to AI, chooses who it's going to launch a missile against. Uh, they, uh, so there's the ethics side, which we've just discussed, which is the kind of conscious and unconscious bias when you're starting to kind of train these networks. And then there's the use of AI, where do you feel that there are lines that can be crossed that we have to be aware of, whether it's weapon systems or, you know, decisions on awarding benefits or whatever, where you might be starting to use AI or job hiring? Are, are these the kind of ethical questions that we should be thinking about? Uh, absolutely. Um, I'm with, you know, world experts like Stuart Russell, Tempsa Sabas, the, the CEO of DeepMind, went in saying that we shouldn't use AI for any um, weaponry. Um, but also, we have to be, so, so that aside, we have to be very careful with what we do apply AI to. And as you said, hiring processes um, can be incredibly dangerous um, if got wrong. And um, we saw a good case study of Amazon um, realizing before their AI HR hiring system was operational that it was biased and they didn't roll, roll it out. And so um, I think if we go back to your retailer again, your retailers sitting there with many options, maybe thousands of options of where they can add AI to their business and it's about making sure that you're that they're adding it to a place where it's it's uniquely needed it's additive and has less chance of impacting um customers or staff in a biased way and there are so many places to start like i'm always really surprised when there are uses of ai that kind of are cool and trendy and not really necessary um like why when there's so much stuff to fix <laughs> um i want to see a movement where towards people using AI for the dirty, dangerous, dull, um, disastrously boring jobs rather than for the kind of the whizzy, shiny stuff, because that's genuinely where you're going to end up in more sticky situations anyway. We, we talked a bit about government policy and your role on the council. I mean, the government advisors are talking about an ARPA, an advanced research projects agency modelled on the uh, US version DARPA, which has attained sort of mythical status in, in the UK as being a, a brilliant kind of uh, catalyst for innovation. Is, uh, is, a, is the idea of a UK ARPA realistic? Um, I think there's a lot of questions still to be answered. Where are the gaps in the current UK research and development system, for example, and making sure that we're applying this money and energy to the right area. Um, Smart Walport yesterday said, you know, it's form over function. And um, I think that's an interesting um, question that we need to ask ourselves. I'm really excited because I culturally love the idea of, um, you know, there's a great book, um, Organising Genius. And I love the culturally the idea of getting the very best, the very best of the nation and task led you know mission led innovation i'm a, i'm definitely of this mariana matsukatu school and that excites me <laughs> but also um we have to learn from countries where arpa hasn't been as successful 
rather than just only from those scenarios where uh, in the States it has because there was a you know common enemy. And we need to make sure ultimately that we're pointing at the right problem. So uh, as, as you've already alluded to, you know, weaponry is something that all the AI experts that I know don't want to um, point artificial intelligence at. Um, but climate change is something that unanimously people are really um, focused on. Because it's a big problem we've not been able to solve before. I mean, part of the noises I've heard from number 10 are, funny enough, form over function, that it's it's more about getting the right people rather than... It's, it's better to get the people first and then decide what it's going to do rather than decide what it's going to do and try and shoot all the people into it. And, and that could be... Um, that could be the answer. You know, there are there are some really great people out there. Um it's just it just makes people other other people feel uncomfortable not knowing um, where this is where those people would want to point this at. Can I um, uh, just ask you? You've got a book coming. I do. How to talk to robots: A Girl's Guide to Artificial Intelligence, coming out at the end of October. I, I normally I'm always reluctant to ask a woman in tech about what it's like to be a woman. That's in good tech. of you. <laughs> uh, but I asked Poppy Gustafsson, the head of Dark Trace, mm. she was fine with it. And I wasn't going to ask you, but then I saw that you very explicitly made this a girl's guide, mm. not a kid's guide or a, or whatever. So you clearly do feel that there's, and I totally understand why you would feel this, because I feel it too, that there's still a long way to go in mm. terms of getting... Uh, gender balance, if you like, in terms of tech and getting more women to work in tech. I feel really passionate about how long a way there is to go and how many more women we need to get into tech. But this book is actually not about getting women into tech. What it is about is about getting uh, women who don't want to be in tech to understand enough about artificial intelligence that they can continue in their jobs because tech is coming for their jobs. <laughs> so it's for young uh, young girls at school. It's for women at uh, deciding what job they're going to do. It's for women who are marketeers. They are cash registers, people in retail. They are um uh, they are in, uh, they're working in banks, they're working in post offices, they're chefs, they um, they are going about their everyday not worrying about artificial intelligence yet. And this book is a book to say, don't worry, but be prepared um, and understand just enough so that you um, feel empowered and you can make sure that AI works for you rather than you working for it. Um, so that the book very um, loosely um, and hopefully not too boringly because I got an amazing friend of mine Karen Ho from MIT to help me um, describe what AI is and then what it does is it talks about the history of some of the incredible women in the field but most of the book is about life advice it's about work advice it's a kind of how-to rather than a tech book um, and I'm kind of hoping that people buy it keep it in their handbags and kind of feel a bit stronger because they have it there. So I was intrigued by some of the people you spoke to for the book. So Karen Ho writes itself mm. while you would speak to Karen Ho. But you also spoke to the author Jeanette Winterson. <gasps> yeah. I'd love to know what the... Um, uh, I'd love to hear an author's perspective on AI. So Jeanette Winterson wrote a book called Frankistein. So like kiss like a... 
uh, in the middle of Frankenstein. I'm not sure she describes it like that, so I apologize. Um, and what I loved about it is it was, it, she, she looked at sort of how AI and technology um, and men come together, um, trans, uh, it was a transgender um, angle to the book as well. And it was, it, for me, it was really uh, arresting. And we actually got chatting on Twitter and we became really good friends. We went for tea at National Portrait Gallery and we basically shouted at each other for about two hours about how um, women were being left behind in this dialogue and how dangerous it would be if that happened. And she, she more eloquently than anyone I really know, um, was able to describe why it was so important. And so I had to make sure her voice was heard by our readers as well. So that is brilliant. So here I am having bored you silly and taken 40 minutes of your time on a podcast. And at the end of it, the podcast I want to hear is you and Jeanette <laughs> talking about we AI. Should it do sounds, that I wish you recorded that two hour conversation at the National Portrait <laughs> Gallery. It sounds absolutely fantastic. I really, I mean that. Actually. It was really <laughs> That'd great. Be brilliant. Or oh, you should do a TV I program. On it. I think it'd be brilliant. Um, you're, but you're busy enough. But I just want to ask you as we wrap up, you, you do wear two hats. You've got a, a business mm. hat and you've got a policy hat. I'm obviously interested this is a sort of slightly personal question. I'd love, and it's probably an unfair question, your reflections on the difference between working in business on driving forward the AI agenda mm. and working with government in driving forward the AI agenda. Firstly, I'm not paid for my government role. It's very important. That's, that's quite an <laughs> obvious difference. Um, so it's a passion. Um, yeah. It's addictive. It's unrelenting. It's pretty thankless. Um, but... It's harder to get stuff done. It's harder to get stuff time. done. Um, I don't know. Uh, yes, of course it's hard to get stuff done, but I, I kind of am okay with that. I think what I'm not okay with is when... I'm not okay with anybody sort of saying... Uh, I can't bear it when there are, when there's no good reason for for the slowdown. I think the last year there has been so many reasons that you know are understandable, and then the pandemic. So I, I don't think I'm in the right state of mind to sort of talk about the government being slow. But I think what I do find frustrating is um, is is and is the kind of the 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 interplay between industry. Um, academic, academia and government. I think that can get tighter and better and stronger. And and there are so many people at the moment who want to support, um, who want to support what the future of, of AI and other technologies look like. And I just want that to, that interlock to get tighter because then we can move quicker. Um, in business, obviously, um, that you know there is a there is a lot easier to run faster because there's less fear of failure. And we've we've learned as an industry, even even us Brits, we ha we are now better at you know micro failures that compound towards success, whereas um, the government don't have that luxury um, of being able to to trip over and stand back up again and keep going. Um, you know, I, the the kind of the that I think is a, is probably the biggest difference. Yeah, no, it's interesting that I had a fellow government minister called Francis Maud who mm -hmm. wanted to have annual awards for failure for yeah. the civil service to encourage them to try and fail yeah. because the culture of government is you can't possibly fail because otherwise you'll be on the front page of the yeah. newspaper it'll be in mm, the rusty the rusty nail yeah, yeah. that'd be a good idea thank you so much thank you so um, much i know how busy you are i've really enjoyed our conversation and um 
it's been a delightful tour of uh, AI and government and uh, bigging up the UK, which we always lovely to chat. So thank you very much. And I hope all your listeners <laughs> come you to our weekly Cogexes now online every Wednesday morning. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Vasey View, a production of Kindred Media 